Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. That's it. Book the amphitheater. I'm about to make the greatest presentation of my long career in medical science. Who is that? That's Mr. Dobunaba. He's from the North Solomon Islands in Papua New Guinea. Say hello, Mr. Dobunaba. Mm. Mm. Guess how old Mr. Dobunaba is. Uh, 85. 126. Do you know what they call him? Where he comes from? I couldn't guess. Young whippersnapper. Everybody lives a really long time there. Mm -hmm. Yes, unless they're bitten by the New Guinea death adder. That's correct, Mr. Dobunaba, but we went over that. There are no death adders here at the medical school. Now, guess what Mr. Dobunaba's blood pressure is? Isn't that private? It's 65 over 30. You know what that is? (laughs) Death? It's a state of life extension we've never seen before. And it's all because of these berries, which I'm going to be selling on the shopping channel two weeks from today. It doesn't even look like a berry. That's because it's technically spider feces. Which do you want to do? Live forever or stand here and pick my ideas apart, huh? Dr. Wolf, we're drowning in all these quickie ideas about life extension, but they don't address the bigger question of human health. No offense, Mr. Dobunaba, but you've barely moved at all since I got here. I have serious doubts about the quality of your life. Did you hear that? He's saying roll out the barrel. We'll have a barrel of fun. Yeah, I'm certain he didn't. Then you're a cultural imperialist. It it doesn't matter. Once Dr. Wolf's North Solomon Island eternal life berries take off, I'll be so rich I can pay somebody else to die for me. Meanwhile, here's a show about a serious medical investigation into a theory of everything concerning aging and sickness. Mr. Dobunaba, why don't you introduce the host? <laughs> yes. All right. Uh, that's enough. Of, don't buy those berries when they go on sale, all right? First of all, as we've just discovered, they're not berries. And second of all, that's not, it's not... You have to think a little bit more deeply about things like this. Uh, I know everybody wants you to buy a goji berry or an akai berry or something like that. It's not really the way it works, though. There aren't those kinds of quick fixes. But there is this topic, which we have been wanting to do a show about for a year. Uh, I think we first started talking about it about a year ago. And the reason we started talking about it a year ago was uh, at that time, uh, I noticed that the Yale Medical School had gotten a $10 million Blavatnik grant for work in this specific area of immunobiology. Um, and, and the researchers at Yale were talking about, they really were talking about a potential, quote, theory of everything, unquote, just the way physicists talk about it, even in the movie out uh, right now about Stephen Hawking, a theory of everything. Well, that's uh, a common conversation in physics. You don't hear it so much in medicine. Uh, but the researchers were saying, what if it's true that there are, in fact, unifying elements behind seemingly unrelated diseases and that those unifying elements have something to do with the inflammatory process. Um, well, I, I love theories of everything anyway, so <laughs> we, have to, we, have to have, we have to learn more about this. So anyway, it's taken us a year to do it, but this is the week for doing shows that have taken us a long time to do because we did one yesterday, uh, and we also, uh, last night, taped with the Winterpills. We've been trying to tape with the, with the Winterpills uh, this band 
longer, I think two, like two and a half years. So uh, joining us here in studio is uh, Vishwadeep Dixit, uh, professor of comparative medicine uh, and of immunobiology at Yale School of Medicine, aforementioned Yale School of Medicine. Also with us, Kathleen Muller. She is a medical director of the Center for Integrative Medicine at St. Francis and the co-owner of Holistic Health Partnering in Windsor. And Eric Secor, associate medical director, integrative medicine, Hartford Healthcare Cancer Institute and assistant professor, Department of Medicine, UConn Health Center. Boy, those were a lot of titles. Um, I'm all done, actually. That's the end of the show. Thanks for joining us. Now, uh, we're going to begin uh, with uh, with Vishwa Deep Dixit uh, because this is sort of where the hardcore science does come in here. Um, so maybe before we sp- talk specifically about the really interesting work you did with mice, uh, maybe we can talk a little bit about the overarching theory here. And I'm I'm being the typical NPR layman kind of putting my own gloss on this. But, but I did see in some of the literature coming out of Yale Medical School this notion of a theory of everything, that maybe the inflammatory process tells us about cancer, heart disease, Alzheimer's disease. The possibilities seemed pretty extensive. Yeah, thanks, Colin. Um, yes, the, with regards to aging and inflammation per se, uh, uh, there is this hypothesis, yes, perhaps uh, there are certain triggers in our body that, uh, that lead to inflammation and whether uh, uh, that inflammation is indeed the culprit in causing multiple chronic diseases is something that is heavily investigated currently. So the, the, with regards to the theory of everything, uh, there is this, you know, intriguing uh, phenomena that we all know with aging is that, in fact, aging is the biggest risk factor for almost every chronic disease. You know, you can talk about type 2 diabetes, atherosclerosis, certain forms of cancers, arthritis. And the thing is, biomedical enterprise spends billions of dollars tackling each one of these diseases individually. And one of the arguments and the hypothesis in the field is, is there something intrinsic in the biology of aging that triggers uh, uh, things like uh, chronic inflammation and whether those things then lead to all these diseases. So question: the big question is, can we understand those mechanisms and in that process delay actually the onset of all those, di- all those diseases uh, simultaneously rather than tackling them individually and perhaps then extend not only just the lifespan but also the health span. Now, we should say that the body needs a certain amount of inflammation, right? I mean, inflammation is the way the body reacts to certain stressors. Is that correct? Absolutely. And uh, inflammation is a very critical protective response, which which we need for protection against uh, bacteria, viruses. We've evolved with it uh, for repair uh, during injury. Um, but classical signs of those inflammation that exist during responses like you know, host defense and injury are very different from this chronic low-grade inflammation that we see, for example, with age uh, and in certain metabolic diseases, in fact. So, so it's a kind of an enigma in the field as to why that inflammation emerges uh, as we get older and whether that inflammation indeed leads to these diseases is highly uh, 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 is under investigation, and and to specifically understand what are, what are the what are the mechanisms that lead to those uh, different diseases. Well, let's talk about one of those mechanisms. Uh, um, you said before that aging uh, was the the highest risk factor in, in a lot of these life threatening diseases, and unlike other risk factor factors, you can't really turn it off that easily. I mean, you can stop smoking, you can lose weight, you can deal with a lot of other risk factors, but you can't stop aging. It just happens. 
Um, on the other hand, it would be interesting to know whether, in fact, we could turn off mechanisms in the body that are associated with some of the patterns some, uh, of wear on our bodies. And that's sort of where you come in with the study that you did, right? You were looking at, at healthy mice uh, having a normal diet and explain what the parameters of the, of the study were. So, um, so uh, going back to the inflammation and calling, that's a very important point because right now uh, the study that we had done, uh, because you know, as as when we measure these cytokines, these pro-inflammatory cytokines in in, in elderly, we all see that these cytokines are higher, uh, and they are not at very high levels that you would see in infection. But we still don't know whether they actually cause uh, those diseases. So, but those cytokines are regulated by several several mechanisms, and one of very interesting. Um, 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 molecule that has recently been discovered uh, is called as the inflammasome. It's basically a complex of three proteins that is present uh, within our macrophages. These are immune cells that, that, that fight infections. And, but the interesting thing about this complex is that it senses damage. It senses danger signals. And um, in fact, it can also sense things that are not of bacterial origin. So what we actually did in that study was to see uh, what happens with age. Does this complex get activated? And in fact, this complex gets activated, which leads to production of these two cytokines called as IL-1-beta and IL-18. And if you dampen the activity of this, uh, this inflammasome complex, uh, what was quite intriguing and very interesting was that um, the animals were protected from uh, not only inflammation but several outcome measures that, 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 that suggest that their health was better. So, for example, these mice that got older, they had um, uh, increased uh, uh, in- increase cognitive performance, so they were protected from dementia. They had increased bone mass, or they were, they were protected from bone loss. They had improved glucose tolerance. So these are diverse conditions that happen due to inflammation with age, and we were able to link this particular mechanism as far as inflammasome activation is concerned to aging. And, uh, and of course, that now there is a big question, how can we deactivate or lower the activity of this complex, uh, either through, through drugs or either through, uh, through other, uh, other sources or, or other mechanisms like dietary interventions or, or things like uh, supplements and stuff like that. When you use the word inflammasome, are, are we talking about s- uh, some cluster of genetic proteins? Is that what an inflammasome? What so, is that? What so is this, that? there's like three proteins, um, and um, one is called as NLRP3. There is an adapter protein called as ASC, which binds to another protein called as caspase 1. But you can consider this as a molecular Velcro uh, so that even your macrophage, uh, you know, phagocytose a bacteria or for example, uh, can phagocytose p- particles that uh, or, or, or crystals. And what happens is then that's the sensor protein which is present inside this bacteria, immune sensor called as NLRP3, gets activated, and it combines with these two other proteins to form this complex. And once this complex is formed, then it leads to activation of these two very critical pro-inflammatory cytokines, and then which leads to the cascade of inflammation. So this, this is a main immune sensor that uh, once it senses these danger signals, uh, it causes activation of, uh, of these macrophages, which is very critical when we are fighting against infections. But there is a low-grade activation of this complex in response to several metabolic signals and, and several factors that are not of bacterial origin that, that increase with age and that causes uh, inflammation. So uh, and let's, uh, we're going to uh, weave our other two guests in here into this conversation in just a second. But in, in a way, okay, 
I didn't. I only understood about a third of that, but <laughs> uh, but that was pretty good. A third of that. So, um, but but it, it sounds like what you're saying, though. Maybe you can even sort of sketch it out at a larger level. I mean, if it's true that low-grade inflammation, uh, which is activated by a number of different factors and stressors and stuff like that, could cause heart disease. How would that happen? Is there a sort of a layman's way to, to, to say how that would be? So, um, of course, you know, when we have uh, inflammation at this low grade, it comes with, uh, with a cost. Um, and, and that cost is that these chronic levels of these pro-inflammatory cytokines will act on your uh, different cell types that are present, for example, uh, in the heart, in the arteries. And um, the sustained level of that inflammation uh, impairs the function of those, those, those cells. And depending upon where those cells are and what exactly their function is, for example, if it's in, in, in your neurons when you have inflammation in brain, uh, which is produced by these cells called microglia, which is a type of a macrophage, that eventually it impairs neuronal function. And the same thing happens in the bone and in the heart and in our fat cells, which leads to, eventually leads to diabetes. So it really is kind of almost as though something's kind of battering away at, you know, at all these systems uh, if it's allowed to go on too long. Um, so um, Kathleen Muller, maybe you can uh, chime in here and, and, and Eric too. So I think people are listening to this, and one of the questions they have is, all right, well, let's say that we really could figure some of this stuff out, and, and, and at a certain level maybe we even have some, figured some of this out. Can I – can I stop this process at its tracks? Can I even reverse some of this process? Um, so, uh, and those are two two very different things: stopping something before it gets any worse, and actually turning back the process a little bit. Um, what are the what are the possibilities as you understand them for either of those? I think the research that's come out uh, most recently is incredibly encouraging as far as both stopping and potentially reversing the damage that's caused by this chronic low-grade inflammation. We now have very good data that shows that the chronic low-grade inflammation can lead to obesity and heart disease. It's linked with diabetes, lung problems, uh, some types of cancer, depression. And we also know that those can be influenced by good nutrition, stress reduction, better activity, uh, better sleep, um, env- uh, reduction of environmental toxins, enjoying your work, good relationships, all of those lifestyles we know can reduce that effect of chronic low-grade inflammation. I, I sort of look at it as, you know, our bodies are miraculous and made to heal us. And if we kind of pave the way and make it easier for it to do what it's supposed to do, if we get out of the way and feed it with good stuff and sleep well, then our body works pretty well. It's when we put those roadblocks in, we have challenges and increase our inflammation. Although in some ways, our, 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 everything that you say about our bodies is true, except that our bodies also weren't necessarily originally designed to go as many years as they're going. In exactly. other words, some of what he's describing is really just the fact, uh, a part of the fact that you know, whoever made us didn't think we were going to live to be 80 or 85 years old. Right. We would have been killed off by infection or trauma, which is what we usually did, and lifespans are at uh, remarkable highs. And so I think, at least with my work, what we're trying to do is help people as they live longer to live better. We have old 50-year-olds and we have young 80-year-olds, and how can we influence us all to live better at the age that we are? And, and Eric, well, I mean, some of this might be – some people might be wondering, let's say you're in your 50s or I, I just turned 60, and uh, some people might be thinking, well, actually, I feel pretty good. Uh, I mean, wh- why, why would I be worried about infl- uh, inflammation? Could you feel pretty good and still ultimately be kind of running up a tab here somehow? Yeah, absolutely. You can feel good. Um, you could be a young 70-year-old. You could be an old 50-year-old. I think our challenge is 
that we see patients throughout the, throughout the spectrum. And I think, as Kathleen said, it would be nice if we saw patients earlier and earlier and earlier. Um, in the integrated medicine world, we tend to see the patients that are not well. We tend to see patients who are in chronic pain, have multiple conditions, and are on multiple medications. So we do want to reverse that process. Um, I don't think there's a point of no return, so I think we can still provide 10, 15, 20% of benefit. But as you said, uh, in our 30s, 40s, 50s, even our children today, we know that they're inflamed. We know that they have obesity, diabetes as as young as 10 years old. So I don't think it's too young to get involved with uh, turning off the inflammatory process. You know, deep in some ways, we're talking about um, a, a fork uh, in the road of life extension medicine. I mean, there's a lot of this going on. We had a really interesting show we did a few weeks ago about people who are studying and, and asking questions, some of them even ethical questions, about near immortality. You know, what if we could live to be 150, 175? Um, but there are other questions about this. Uh, I mean, it seems like a lot of resources go into that notion of how far could we extend life without asking a comparable set of questions. Like how are people going to feel when they're 95 uh, as opposed to even to 135. I mean, how great is it to live to be 135 if you feel like crap? <laughs> yeah, I think that's a very important that point. That was very eloquently put. <laughs> I think you'd have to agree. <laughs> or you just on the couch. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so uh, so I guess the field uh, obviously uh, is, is interested in lifespan uh, extension, but I think the bigger uh, emphasis now is also on, on, on compressing the morbidity, as Kathleen was mentioning. And that is to have a longer health span or a portion of our lives that are free of disability. And obviously, like you just mentioned, I mean, nobody wants to live uh, long and then uh, have uh, this this chronic period of uh, disability and lack of independence and, and all that. So there is actually uh, uh, this analogy in, 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 in aging research based on famous poem by Oliver Wendell Holmes, you know, the one horse shea uh, poem. And, and the thing there is that, you know, this fictitious carriage lasted hundreds and hundreds of years, and when it fell apart, it, it fell apart instantaneously because all its component parts were equally strong, right? So the argument by some people who, who believe more in mechanics is that, you know, well, if we can keep each of our organs equally strong, then, you know, that's the way to go because then when it falls apart, that we have less morbidity. But unfortunately, that's not how biology works. Not every organ ages at the same Space. So for example, the, the, one of the organs called thymus that makes T-cells, uh, new T-cells, uh, by the age of 45, about 80% of this organ is converted into fat. So as we are living longer, um, the immune system is not able to cope with, with, these, with these changes. It does pretty well, but, but as we are living longer and longer, uh, the emphasis is now to understand what we can do to keep the immune system competent and, and that, uh, so that we can delay the onset of these chronic diseases and compress the morbidity. Um, I, I think it's a good time to take a break. Uh, maybe a lot of you out there in the audience have questions. Uh, we do not uh, want to take questions about your specific ailments. You should actually see a medical professional about those. But if you have more overarching questions, that would be good. Uh, our number is 860-275-7266, 860-275-7266. You may also tweet us at WNPR Colin. Your molecular structure is really something swell, a high-frequency modulated. Jezebel, thermodynamically, you're getting to me. Your molecular structure, baby. Ooh. 
We're talking about inflammation, uh, about the inflammatory process, and about the possibility that uh, this underlying low-level inflammatory process in your body, particularly as you age and your body starts to handle low-level inflammation in a different way, that it really begins to set you up for all of the diseases that you're worried about getting. You're worried about heart disease. uh, You're worried about Alzheimer's. You're worried about cancer. You're worried about a whole range of things. And and all of them may tie into uh, what we're talking about right now. I mean, it's not the only explanation, but it's part of the explanation. And and you start, the way I understand it anyway, kind of turning up the dials uh, for the possibilities of those diseases because of the process we're talking about right now. Our number is 860-275-7266, With us in studio, Vishwadeep Dixit, a professor of comparative medicine and immunobiology at the Yale School of Medicine. Uh, my other two guests are Kathleen Muller and Eric Seacrest. She's uh, in integrative medicine at St. Francis. He's in, in, in integrative medicine at Hartford Healthcare Cancer Institute. If I try to say the rest of their titles, the show will be over. So uh, just take my word for it. They have very good titles. Um, so um, I want to sort of get into some of – so uh, uh, Kathleen, a, a little while ago you were sort of talking about the things that might feed into this process. I mean some of it is just happening. Some of it is just happening in our bodies. We're getting older. Our bodies are doing certain things, making certain conversions, putting fat places that uh, didn't used to be fat. And you know, there's, there are some limits to what we can do about it. But you talked about diet. You talked about stress. You talked about liking your work, getting along with your family. You talked about basically you described a life that as far as I can tell no one has. Um, <laughs> but um, – but so in, in, in some ways, what you were talking about there, I mean, I wish I could play it back, but it's a tall order for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people are going, wow, that's not my life at all. I eat crummy and I, I'm under a lot of stress and, and I, you know, I drink three glasses of wine a night and I do this and I do that. Um, so in, in a way, I think people probably do want to know, well, how do I begin breaking off pieces of this puzzle? Uh, and so, so what do you tell people in that situation? I think that's a very, very important point. It would be lovely if we could all live perfectly all the time, but it just doesn't happen. I think uh, what we try and do is really educate people first. People need to know that what they do has a, a huge influence on their health and their wellness. And I think that's often lacking in the conversation that you have in your doctor's office. There's just not enough time to get the education first. So educate first. And then we try to be very innovative and help people make small changes. The other thing that's been very um, encouraging and powerful in recent research is that very small changes can make massive differences. So we're not asking people to sit in the you know lotus position and meditate for an hour a day. That would be lovely, but ten minutes, you know, ten minutes a day within eight weeks, we know that you can have a benefit and a reduction in blood pressure as well as potential reduction in a general inflammatory state. So what we try and do is innovate and find interesting ways that people can implement these in their lives and then really customize the intervention to that person. There is not one solution for everyone. Small changes, big differences, and really customizing it to what um, people do. One thing I should have asked uh, several questions ago is, uh, and, and I think Adip used the term cytokines at one point, you actually can get a kind of baseline reading mm-hmm. uh, on this. Uh, say, what that, say what that process is. So you can get a, um, a general assessment of the inflammatory state with two very common blood tests. The first one is a sedimentation rate. It kind of gives us a general total body inflammatory indicator. And the second is high-sensitive C-reactive protein, another one that we often order in conjunction with people of heart disease, but really we can use it for anybody to find out their base level of inflammation. They're two really 
sort of um, not specific markers, but general markers that we could follow over a number of weeks to months to just see if people are having, with those small changes, a definitive change, a definitive reduction in the inflammatory state as measured by those markers. Um, uh, I, I don't know who to ask this question to, but I'll, I'll ask you, Eric, and uh, maybe some, whoever wants to answer it can also answer it. I'm also wondering, I'm listening to all this and I'm thinking, well, so this sounds really great, actually, and it's something that would make some sense, I think. I'm, I've just turned 60. I don't have other than end-stage arthritis in one of my knees, I don't have a specific that I know of <laughs> problem of this kind that I'm addressing right now. On the other hand, uh, for all of the reasons that we're talking about right now, it would make a hell, hell of a lot of sense for me to kind of get a handle on this, figure out maybe what my inflammation levels are in my body, what I could do about reducing them, so that five years from now, one of these things doesn't actually kick the tripwire, push the button, uh, and put me in the hospital with something serious. So to what degree has medical care and the touchy subject of insurance reimbursement for medical care and the identification of things that are appropriate kinds of medical care caught up with and started to mesh with the conversation we're having now. Out of the corner of my eye, I see someone shaking her head, but I did that. I'll, uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll ask you. I have this conversation every day in the yeah. clinic. So insurance is slowly catching up. Um, we do have specific codes for prevention. We have specific codes for coordination. Um, coordination of care. So when we see people, not only can we do uh, preventative medicine um, activities in laboratories every six months, every quarter, but we can do things like nutritional intervention, uh, group uh, stress reduction activities. So obviously on our end as the physicians, the more preventative things we do right now, uh, those codes are not reimbursed very highly. So we're trying to be innovative, as Kathleen said. It'd be nice to get 10 people together in a group so that we can do preventative medicine uh, sessions together. Um, obviously, on our end, we'd like to be in, reimbursed in these things because we feel that they're, they have value. And long term, they're going to set you up for uh, less comorbidity and less problems, less drug use, hopefully uh, less need for surgical procedures. So the insurance companies and the, the insurers and the employers do recognize this, and they're slowly, um, slowly catching up. Um, Kathleen, uh, but even those tests that you talked about, I don't know, I get a physical every year. Uh, my Dr. Jack, he does a lab panel. I don't know, are those necessarily going to be in there? Because the, I'd love to know about my... No, I don't. I, they're not. They're not standard. You know, it's not. You don't get it with your cholesterol and your CBC yeah. and your you know kidney function. Um, but I do think it, it, you also sort of have, a, have to have a plan. Those having having those measurements in isolation and not sort of having a plan of what you want to do with it, um, I, I think, is a waste of healthcare dollars. So I think you, you need to have a plan and you need to have sort of a, a roadmap marked out. And then as these small changes are made, then you remeasure and reassess and kind of tweak a little bit more. All right. Uh, we may come back to that. We get some interesting calls here. So let's uh, take a few of these calls. Here's James in East Hartford. Hi, James. Hi, Colin. Fire away. Uh, I, I want to, uh, the doctors to address, does uh, food sensitivities and food allergies, can they cause uh, inflammation and uh, premature aging? Um, Eric, maybe you would like to talk about uh, so, that first. So I spent 10 years looking at food allergies and sensitivities and allergies and asthma. And I think as Deep said, um, we've identified, uh, you know, at, at UConn, our lab was set up by Dr. Thrall, who basically set up this model based on chronic inflammation. And what he was trying to do was develop a model of chronic inflammation, of chronic lung scarring. So when he developed this model, he saw, oh, by the way, they got asthma and they got lung pathology. So 
indeed, we can see that low-grade inflammation and low-grade allergies can lead to wider um, inflammatory process. Um, I haven't read the literature on linking, you know, chronic allergies directly to aging, but we do know that it directly increases the inflammatory process. And that doesn't have to be anaphylactic allergies, IgE. It can be low-grade chronic inflammatory allergies, uh, maybe IgG sensitivity. So I think it's a very important point, and those should be identified and addressed. Yeah. Well, it kind of makes sense at an intuitive level, right? I mean, you have allergies, so your body is, in fact, reacting to them, it's a, they're stressors on your body. Your body's doing a whole bunch of things that are making you very uncomfortable uh, because they're fighting the whatever the allergen is. It kind of makes sense that they're going to be doing this thing. You know, before I take Mike's call, um, Deep, I also want to, as somebody who's doing the pure science research of this, how comfortable are you uh, with the jump from there to integrative medicine? In other words, uh, I mean, nobody's asking you to stake your reputation on the idea that uh, 10 minutes of meditation or, or some other kind of quieting response <laughs> or going to yoga class or something is going to uh, um, affect the inflammatory process. But, I mean, uh, do you feel as though there is some pipeline between what you're working on and what they're saying that at least makes some sense to you? No, there are there are several very serious scientists who are working on mind-body connection and things that Kathleen is mentioning. These things are perhaps not trivial. Uh, the question really is how we can experimentally address those things. Uh, what kind of experiments can we do to understand the mechanism, whether these things indeed work through this particular pathway? With regard to integrative medicine, I mean, there, there are clearly some signs of these things working. For example, um, there was this study out of uh, Ohio State University by Ron Glazer and colleagues where they found that uh, caregivers uh, for Alzheimer's patients had much shorter telomeres and the stress levels in those individuals is is also uh, leading to um, uh, several of these pathologies actually in the caregivers. Um, with regards to um, other sort of interventions, uh, one of the things that we all know very well is that uh, ranging from flies to worms to even to, to some extent in monkeys that r- restricting the calories mm-hmm. extends lifespan, extends health span. And um, now there are uh, studies actually being done. For example, National Institute on Aging had uh, funded this study called the Scalary um, where uh, people, uh, healthy people between the ages of uh, 28 and 45 uh, were um, um, uh, asked to reduce their calorie intake by 25% for a period of two years. So this study is now complete, and um, you would probably be hearing about it in the next coming months as the data are, are, are under peer review and going to be published. But there are lots of encouraging signs uh, that suggest that we can not only delay the process of aging, but, but actually uh, manipulate some of these mechanisms to reduce these chronic diseases. On the other hand, you should hear what Deep had for breakfast. Um, <laughs> Eric and Kathleen are going to be having a little conversation with you <laughs> yes. before we leave here today. Uh, our number is, is 860-275-7266, Um I should say that uh, Betsy Kaplan, who's the uh, producer who put this whole show together, has discovered that having a peanut butter sandwich at 1030 in the morning is the key, the key to this whole process. Um, all right, uh, here's a Mike in Glastonbury. Hi, Mike. You're on the Hi. air. Hi. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Uh, great topic. I just wanted to alert the listeners to a book that I got a few years ago. It's called Healthy Aging, and it's by Andrew Weil, and uh, he is an MD. Its copyright is from 2005, uh, but it is right up 
the show's topic about uh, inflammation, the anti-inflammatory diet, uh, all the you know effects of aging. Uh, so it to me it was very easy reading, uh, quite knowledgeable. Uh, I don't know if your guests have any comments on some books that have been published more recently along the same topic. I'll ask our integrative medicine friends uh, about this. Obviously, Andrew Weil has been uh, plowing this field uh, like longer than anybody, really. Yes. Um, but um, actually, before we ask, I ask you that question, though, maybe we could just quickly talk about uh, an anti-inflammatory diet. What does that mean? Uh, um, uh, a twenty-five percent calorie reduction sounds like a great place to start, <laughs> but but beyond that, uh, and maybe Kathleen, you could sort of kick us off there. Yeah, my fellowship in integrative medicine was under Andrew Weil in his program, so mm-hmm. fabulous book, I have to say. Um, so the anti-inflammatory diet is really based on regular old foods, lots of fruits and vegetables at the base, whole grains at the next level, which means not you know your white bread, but also not your wheat bread that doesn't really have a whole lot of grain in it either. You got to have nuts and seeds in there as well. Um, a little bit of red meat, a little bit of dairy, a little bit of red wine is part of the anti-inflammatory diet as well, um, and very healthy sources of oils and fats. Uh, we're not looking at a low-fat type diet. Actually, a lot of the Mediterranean diet, which is part of what the anti-inflammatory diet is based on, has a higher quantity of fat, but it's in the form of nuts and seeds and olive oil rather than uh, processed and saturated fats that we have a uh, much higher percentage in the standard American diet. Um so and it's sort of that's like the pyramid thing you hear exactly. about. I mean, it's basically once again kind of common sense, which hardly therefore anybody uses. I don't know why right. they call it common sense because <laughs> it's not really very common. Um, the um, you know I, we're talking about this, Eric, all in terms of prevention, uh, but I mean there's another component to this, and and uh, and and it's also it has to do with once you've got something too. And it I mean I, I think it's specifically interesting in terms of how we understand cancer these days. I mean cancer used to be understood I think quite differently. It's this disease you got it. We bombarded you with whatever we figured out was the thing that what might kill the cancer before it kills you. Uh, either you made it or you didn't. Mm-hmm. And and. Uh, I'm oversimplifying here, obviously, but cancer has now become understood somewhat differently as a disease that's treated and also that you may live with for a, a long time. Um, and I would think that the kind of conversation that we're having right now about the sort of, for want of a better term, background radiation of inflammation is is really important in terms of managing a disease you already have. Well, not only is the has the cancers been better managed, but there's a whole big new push towards survivorship. So the next phase of cancer management is is really about survivorship. And, and my work previous to joining Hartford Hospital was really in general patient care. And in the last year, uh, just as you said, my practice has been transformed into supporting cancer patients and their caregivers. So, you know, we're not, uh, we're here to support them in their process and exactly like Kathleen says, our belief is that we can add 10, 20, 30 percent value to their, their treatment process by working on stress reduction, diet, exercise, lifestyle modification. Do they still have cancer? Are they still going through their process? Yes. But it's amazing to see that you can still add value. You can still add health uh, when you engage in these activities. I'm going to grab a, a quick break here, um, and we're going to come back. We can take a few more of your phone calls at 860-275-7266. 860-275-7266. 
kind of hard to follow all this scientific talk, ain't it? Personally, it makes my head spin. Wouldn't it be easier to just call the number right here on your screen and order a starter pack of Dr. Wolf's North American Island Eternal Life Berries? Just $19.99. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kyone Wolf. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by Dr. Oz. For show pages, articles, and Faith Middleton Show staff recipes for inflamed tongue, visit our website, WNPR.org. On tomorrow's show, The Nose Recovers from Allison Williams as Peter Pan. And now, back to Colin. Yeah, we have an ongoing debate right now about what we're going to talk about on The Nose tomorrow. We've got about eight different topics. Uh, we're winnowing it down. But we have our original, I think our original Nose panel ever. It'll be uh, Rand Cooper and Irene Papoulis and Jacques Lamar. On The Nose tomorrow, right now in studio, we are talking about the inflammatory process, uh, about uh, the ways in which it kind of plays across a spectrum of diseases. Um, and, you know, um, before we get it, we get some more calls and some questions and stuff like that, and I want to get to as many of them as I can. But, Deep, just to come back to you for a second. Um, okay, so we got the three of you are sitting in here uh, in this room. You're, all, you're on board, you know, for this, this understanding. I'm wondering to what degree is medical science uh, on board, the research community on board? I mean, it would seem to me that for a lot of research into disease, it would make sense for any researcher – asking, you know, a, a whole plethora of different questions to say, okay, well, what's the inflammatory tie-in here? Or how, how does this play into uh, a theory of, of inflammation's relationship to, to all kinds of diseases? Does that happen all the time? Or is this still kind of a work in progress getting this? I mean, I know Yale Medical School is a real epicenter now for thinking about this. Is everybody else thinking about it too? Yes, absolutely. Uh, uh, the, the area uh, of biology of aging and and the aging itself as a risk factor for these chronic diseases and the search uh, and, and, uh, to find those potential common triggers is 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 now a very hot area of investigation, including uh, what's ongoing here in in in, in Yale. Um, and this is this is something that has you could imagine major implications, major medical implications. So, so for example, like uh, you know, mice that are calorie restricted, or or worms that are calorie restricted, they they live long, but they are also healthier, mm-hmm. right? So that when we delay some of these aging processes, um, that the onset of almost every age-related disease is delayed. So the so what that does is you can imagine that we live long, but then also it is a more healthier lifespan. And the questions that people are trying to address is, okay, yes, you know, like you mentioned, yes, it's very hard to do calorie restriction. Uh, I, I, I can't. <laughs> so, <laughs> and you can, you can. <laughs> maybe, maybe, yes, we can. But, but there, is, there are a lot of people who are trying to understand what calorie restriction does. I mean, it is a, it is a type of a mild stress response. And when we calorie restrict, what are the endogenous mechanisms that are elevated or or depressed that mediate those effects? And now we know there are several of those things. For example, uh, there are people who are studying now calorie restriction mimetics to things that can mimic calorie restriction. And one of the hypotheses there is that when you calorie restrict, you reduce overall glycolysis, you know, your ability to burn glucose. So so the body switches from using glucose as fuel to burning fats. 
and several diets does uh, do the same thing. Exercise would, would, would do those things. And the question is, can we understand what are those molecular mediators that we can potentially harness that are elicited by calorie restriction? And can we target those in any specific way? Because there are individuals who cannot, uh, in a certain state, actually undergo calorie restriction. There are so many issues with that. So potential drug developments or, or, or uh, um, finer approaches to target those mechanisms is being investigated in several places world over. But it's it's not the case, I don't think, that, you know, if you're sitting out there saying, well, if Deep can just figure out how to turn off my NLRP3 inflammasome, <laughs> I'm home free. Um, it's not going to be like that, right? It's going to be you're going to have to do three-fifths integrative medicine and two-fifths huge medical breakthrough where you win a Nobel Prize. And one-fifth <laughs> common sense. And one-fifth <laughs> common sense, which is six-fifths, which is not good common sense. But, um um, all right, so let's. Um, uh, we will take a few calls here, uh, and uh, we're a little bit low on time, but uh, we just had a promo about Wheat Belly. Now we've got a call about Wheat Belly. I reduced. Uh, I released a number of blues albums as Wheat Belly. Uh, they were not popular. Uh, this is Mike in Bristol. Hi, Mike. Hi, Colin. I uh, I was just calling in and uh, wondering if any of your guests are familiar with the book Wheat Belly by Dr. Davis. I was I'd just been reading it, and it's uh, it's really. Uh, pretty impressive what he says about how bad it is to eat wheat and uh, for that matter uh, uh, other um, grains too that people weren't meant to eat them and it causes a whole host of problems and inflammatory problems uh, among them and I just wonder if you could uh, have your guests talk about that a little bit. Um, yes, I mean, at the risk of talking about every single book that's out there promising uh, one single way of dealing with all these problems. But I know, Kathleen, uh, from your body language, you're familiar with this book anyway. I am. And uh, using a gluten-free diet is a tool that I use pretty regularly. And you can have uh, an allergy to wheat, which is celiac disease. You know, it's diagnosable. It's a true allergy. But then you can have a sensitivity. And so we often use what's called an elimination diet, where you just totally get rid of all wheat products and see how you feel. Um, I don't think it's as simple as it's all the grain and there's nothing else. I, I just I think when we try to distill it down and sort of vilify one food group, like you know low fat was going to be the greatest thing. Well, we got fat on low fat, so I, I think we have to be very careful about making it that simple. I don't think it's that simple. Right. Uh, but it's probably not going to be if you eliminate everything except frozen yogurt, for example. <laughs> it, that's not going to. Um, the um, I, can we just talk a little bit of this? One of the trickier things about this, and it was kind of alluded to in some of the things that you've said, um, but um, it, it would it, uh, there's a whole sort of psychological and emotional component to all this, too, and, and, and a sense, anyway, that some of the things we're talking about, this inflammatory process, may not only be triggered by mood states and stress states, but may cause mood states and stress states, which seems like kind of a vicious cycle. In other words, because you are, you're in a certain emotional state, you, know, you ratchet up your inflammation, which ratchets up your bad emotional state to begin with. I mean, Eric, can you say a little bit, or you or Kathleen say a little bit about what the thinking is about all this right now? Oh, absolutely. Clinically, I think almost every patient we see uh, and people we interact with have some level of stress. So our goal is not to overhaul and make them, you know, we're not monks on a mountain with no no stressors. So we do. We evaluate um, what the stressors are. We evaluate what their coping mechanisms are. And, and we do take a common sense approach. I think with every one of our patients, 
And maybe the reason why integrated medicine approaches do add value is because we look at a number of different factors. We're going to look at the diet. We're going to look at the lifestyle. We're going to look at the stress response. So we do want to evaluate it. We want to see how severe it is. And, and we want to put common sense, very simple approaches in place um, that aren't overcomplicated that can be done. You know, Herbert Benson's five-minute stress reduction response. Breathe. Count of three in, count of three out. There are very simple things that we can do with five to ten minutes a day, twice a day, that can have a profound effect on reducing our stress. And, Kathleen, now that this is sort of something that everybody's studying, there are studies that link uh, inflammation to depression. There absolutely are uh, brand-new studies that link uh, inflammation to depression, although it sort of is the chicken and the egg thing. Does the depression cause the inflammation, or does the inflammation cause the depression? I'm not sure that's exactly clear, but we know that they're connected and somehow. Um, And so, you know, as Eric said, small changes, things that are implemented throughout your day, not, not a miracle, but can certainly add significant value and significant health. But, you know, once again, this is sort of a conversation that I think, I mean, first of all, this is a conversation we've had to a remarkable degree over the last 10 or 15 years that I wouldn't have guessed. You know, I mean, it's suddenly like every hospital has the Department of Integrative Medicine when it used to be no hospital had a Department of Integrative Medicine. Uh, And then these departments are being treated very seriously. But we haven't had really the conversation as a society about this. So it's you're depressed, okay, get some Lexapro. Um, You know, I I don't know how, uh, if you guys have ideas about sort of how we get to a place where not that everybody would flush their Lexapro down the toilet, but that this other stuff gets talked about too. As, as Deep said, it's very difficult to do calorie restriction. It's very difficult to set your day up to where you're doing your 45 minutes to 60 minutes of exercise, doing your stress reduction. Societally, we're not set up to um, walk. We're set up to commute. So we're not walking our four to six miles a day. So I think, you know, slowly but surely, all those things were insidious and they've developed and added to our inflammatory state. So we do have to take those back, and it's going to be a slow, stepwise process. Um, so I think the realization is there. Now we just have to put in action. Um, I, yeah, go ahead. I just think some of the biggest changes are actually taking place in the workplace. Mm-hmm. Employers are noticing that their employees are not functioning at the highest level that they can when they're sick, when they're ill, when they're depressed, when they're whatever. And so they're implementing programs, and I think that's the change that we're going to see probably, in my opinion, before the insurance companies uh, f- fund it for us. Of course, the greatest irony of all would be if the integrative medicine uh, uh, departments started having these huge patient caseloads, and you guys are under a lot of stress. It's <laughs> uh, a nice problem to have. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, another thing that I think we do, like I don't know, if I were a doctor, <laughs> one question that I would ask is, how much Motrin, how much ibuprofen are you taking right now? Like everybody that I know is basically, how much ibuprofen are you taking? <laughs> Don't answer that. <laughs> yeah. uh, I mean, that's the other thing we're doing with, with our inflammation, right, too. I mean, you hear from doctors, well, it's a, it, will, it reduces inflammation. So take ibuprofen or take aspirin. Uh, now, I know a little bit of aspirin is okay, but the rest of that is we're like masking a problem, aren't we? Yeah, so um, I think uh, the important thing is is to realize that inflammation is a very broad word, and ibuprofen uh, uh, impacts only one very minute part of that mechanism. Mm-hmm. There are several mechanisms that lead to inflammation, and, and the specificity of that is critical. 
Um, because you know, aspirin doesn't extend lifespan, uh, at least um, it, it may prevent heart disease. Mm. Um, but there have been studies that were done uh, by the intervention testing program at, by National Institute on Aging, where um, mice were uh, given aspirin, and there were no clear data as to whether that extends lifespan. So the point being that uh, mechanisms of inflammation are very diverse, and it's not just one monolithic uh, thing and and within those inflammatory mechanisms, the the key is to target the specific ones um, that are involved in aging. The um, yeah, I mean, and I think also, um, uh, caffeine. Sometimes, I mean, our bodies are telling us stuff, you know. So if you're first of all, I'm really upset at those mice because I'm counting on aspirin. <laughs> uh, I mean, I take baby aspirin every day, so I'm really ticked off at those mice. But but our bodies are telling us stuff all the time. And if our reaction to it is to bombard it with ibuprofen, then we're probably actually missing a message. I think we're missing a message, but also it's more the top-down approach. So you get diabetes, so you take insulin, you take your medication. But where is the where is the support for people to learn how to prevent that in the first place and to sort of doing from the inside out rather than the the masking and, and treating with medications? Not that medications are bad. Thank goodness we have them. But it would be nice if we had to use fewer. All right. Uh, we're almost done. We're almost out of time. But uh, our management is complaining we haven't mentioned stools yet. So uh, here's Dina in Manchester with a question about uh, – I, I don't know if anybody's going to know the answer to this, Dina, but fire away anyway. Hi. Um, so my question is about a stool test um, for lactoferrin, which my understanding is it's a, um, a protein produced by white blood cells. And so it's an indirect measurement of increased levels of white blood cells due to infection or inflammation in the intestines. And uh, doctors don't seem to know much about it. It's a fairly new test. Um, I have uh, off the charts high lactoferrin, but negative white blood blood cell Um, count. First of all, uh, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but we're almost out of time. And I'm usually pretty good at reading body language, and I don't think any of us do. This is, like, new enough so that maybe it's... Not an area of our expertise. It's always good to end with a question that's not in our area of expertise. Uh, in general, though, this has been a fascinating, fascinating conversation. You guys have been great. Uh, so, uh, Deep and Eric and Kathleen, so thank you so much for joining us. And this will be up online at WNPR.org pretty soon if you missed any of it. But don't take my word for it. Here's an actual customer of Dr. Wolf's North Solomon Island Eternal Life Berries. What do you think? Well, I was fine before, but now I can't feel my face. Oh, look at that. Out of time. Order now.